0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted by God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence at the first miracle he wrought in Cana in Galilee, and is commended by St. Paul to be honorable among all men, and therefore is not by any to be enterprised, nor taken in hand unadvisedly, likely, or wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites, like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, Duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. So begins the marriage service in the Book of Common Prayer, which until perhaps 50 years ago would have been used for most, almost all marriage services in this country. <clears throat> Today we're thinking about marriage as part of a series we're doing this term on relationships. A series which we're thinking about relationships in the broader context of the gospel. The good news that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Last week, <clears throat> well I was, on, I was on holiday last week, we went to a church, the minister preached for 45 minutes. Even I found that a little bit long. But um, <clears throat> I won't preach 45 minutes today. But you here, you heard about singleness, didn't you? And, I, and I've listened to you can listen to it online, I've, I've listened to it. And I commend that to you. Um, whether or not you are single, I thought what Kathy had to say was really helpful. <clears throat> Next week we will be thinking about parenting. We've got Cafe Church, we'll be thinking about parent child relationships. And then we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at same-sex relationships. And I'm conscious that these topics are, are tricky. They are they're sensitive topics. This topic of marriage is one which may stir emotions for all sorts of reasons this morning. Um, I, am, I am very privileged. I'm married and I have, I, I think I can honestly say, a wonderful marriage. I have a wonderful wife. You know her. She's out with the kids so she's not hearing this. But make sure you tell her afterwards I said this. <laughs> um, but no, but uh, no, honestly, I do have a most wonderful wife and, and where would I be without her? I don't know. Um, but, I'm, but I'm aware that not everyone can say that. Maybe your experience of marriage has not been so positive. Maybe your husband or wife is no longer alive. Maybe you would love to get married, but you've not had that opportunity. Uh, maybe you've had a, been in an abusive relationship. There are all sorts of reasons I know why this topic may be tricky for some. And as I said right at the start of this series, in any of these topics we're looking at, if you find them challenging, do find somebody to talk to about that. Feel free to talk to me or somebody here that you know um, and share what's on your heart and encourage them to pray with you. This topic of marriage is a very big topic. There is lots in the Bible about marriage. There are narratives. We get lots of stories, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, about marriage. We have poetry. We have the Song of Solomon, this... this um, This series of poems between a a man and his wife or between a a couple who are about to get married. We have ethical teaching in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, including on the topic of divorce where both Jesus and Paul had things to say. We see also marriage used as a metaphor for Christ and the church. Uh, Paul used that and we read that also in the book of Revelation. But I'm going to focus today on Genesis And just a few verses in the book of Genesis, right at the start of the Bible. I should have said, I've noticed we've got a couple of people in the congregation who are about to get married. um, And we're really looking forward to that, so I hope this won't put you off this morning. (laughs) I'm sure it won't. Um, And we're really looking forward to to you being married in a few weeks' time. But let's start with... Genesis 2, and um, I'd encourage you to go back and I think the, the early chapter of Genesis, um, because there's often been controversy in the church as to you know whether these are to be taken literal or poetically, we, we sometimes shy away from them, but they are wonderful um, passages which tell us truth about ourselves and about God and our relationships with God and with one another. So I commend these early chapters of Genesis to you, whether or not, like me, I tend to take them more poetically or whether you take them them literally. But in Genesis 2, verse 18, we read these words. The Lord God said, this is after he's created pretty much everything, he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is the first thing that is described as not good. So far, everything in creation, God has made, and he's pronounced it good, or even very good. And now here's something that's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. And it's tempting to immediately jump to the conclusion that man's problem here is loneliness. Um, But elsewhere in the Bible, we're, I think, not encouraged to think that that's the primary purpose of marriage. I think that's quite a modern Western idea, that um, marriage is created to to stop us being lonely, although although clearly it does have that um, benefit. But uh, there's an American theologian called Stanley Havas. um, He's exaggerating slightly to make a point, but let me read you what he says. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom to marry, we just think we do. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. You can ponder that over the coming weeks. He's, as I said at the start, he's exaggerating to make a point. But I think, so what, so, what is, so what was Adam's problem? If it wasn't just loneliness, I think actually in the context of Genesis, what Adam needed was help, and God made a helper for him. God, Adam needed help. To fulfill the commission God had given him that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. To rule the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. He couldn't do that by himself. From a purely biological point of view, he couldn't do it by himself. But in a broader context of all the responsibilities God had given him, he needed a helper. Now I know what you're thinking. This is all very patriarchal. A woman is a mere helper. But actually this word helper, uh, a Hebrew word, ezer, Is almost always used in the Hebrew scriptures to describe God as our helper so this helper word is normally used as a more powerful being helping a more needy being the wife is not there to clear up after the man according to this verse she is here to save him from his neediness (laughs) something else for you to ponder This word is almost always used to describe God and his relationship to his people. But here it is used to describe the relationship of the woman to the man. The woman comes to save the man from being overwhelmed. So here is the first way in which we see marriage pointing beyond itself. And this is going to be my theme this morning, that marriage points to something greater than itself. Man, mankind, needs help. Man, male or female, needs help. And God sends us a helper. Someone like us and yet not like us. Who else does that remind us of? God sends us a helper. Somebody who is like us and yet not like us. Someone to help us who is more powerful than us and is going to be with us and be faithful to us. It points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you met that person? Let's move on. A few verses later in Genesis 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Genesis 2 24. So a man does two things. He leaves and he is united in the old language he leaves and he cleaves and this language is covenantal it's a permanent ending of one covenant the one that a man has with his parents he leaves that and he is joined with his wife it's important to leave our parents when we get married it's not a good thing to be to remain too closely entwined but on the other hand, marriage can, be becau- can become too exclusive. The man is united with his wife, but also the Bible encourages us to think of marriage as being a relationship that is supportive of the whole community. Uh, we don't want to encourage situations where a husband where, a, where one spouse is controlling of the other. Their relationship is so exclusive that others are completely excluded from it. You heard last week about singleness. And one of the problems that singles often find in church and in wider society is uh, married people are, are so self-sufficient together that they don't welcome other people in. I was very privileged to grow up in a church where I had amazing role models of married couples who were, who were older than me who welcomed me into their homes, who role-modeled marriage to me. And marriage is to be that too. You know, we live, in a, we live in a very contractual age. Everything we do has a contractual element to it. You know, every time you buy a product on, online or something, you're entering into some kind of contract and you're, you're sent endless emails and things to click, to click saying you're accepting cookies and everything else. A, 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 tra- a, a contract is a transaction whereby we undertake obligations and we acquire rights. And I think it's dangerous to think of marriage as too much like that. Where we breach those rights, when we fail, when someone fails us, when we are disappointed, when our circumstances change, when there's a change in our feelings, that is seen as justifying the end of the contract. And in contractual terms, that's how it works. But that's not how marriage is intended to work. A man leaves his father and mother and is united is joined with his wife. You've seen the, the sad and tragic story of um, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard played out before the whole globe in the last few weeks. What a tragedy. When contract becomes the defining feature and failure to fulfil a contract becomes the f- defining feature of their relationship. I don't know whether if any of you have been watching um, there's a series of BBC um, dramas called The Split. Anyone watch that? A few nods, yeah. I think it's very good, actually. I mean, it's not always comfortable viewing. Uh, you can see it on iPlayer. There's, there's three series. And it's about a family of, um, well, it's the, these women who are a family of uh, divorce lawyers, basically. Um, and so they spend their time um, trying to negotiate for their clients to get good divorce settlements. But in parallel to that, they've all I- they're all experiencing relationship challenges of various sorts, in one case bereavement, in other cases breakdown of relationships, unfaithfulness, all sorts of things and it's, it's quite thought-provoking, I think um, and, um, but what you see, that you s- I try not to spoil it too much if you haven't seen it yet but the, the central two characters I suppose are in a marriage relationship and the marriage is falling apart and yet you see that although they spend their life talking about marriage as a contract, there's something in this relationship which they find very, very difficult to, 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 un, to disentangle. They, they love each other even though they recognise it to a large degree the relationship and certainly in a legal sense has broken down. Marriage is a covenant. It's not simply a contract. It's not something simply we enter into and when the circumstances change or when somebody doesn't fulfil their legal obligations then the thing just disappears. Or it, I mean, it can do. Obviously, that does happen. But it's, but it's painful when that happens. And those of you who've been through that know that it's painful when that happens. Another character in, this, in the latest series was a, a, a client who came to this bunch of lawyers. And she said, I want to divorce my husband. And, sh- and she wouldn't give them a reason. And, and then there was, you saw the husband side of it, and he couldn't understand it. They seemed to have a very good marriage. And um, it gradually transpires that the reason the woman wants out of the marriage is because, uh, she, so she's a, she's a medic, she's a senior doctor and she knows she's terminally ill and she knows she's, ex- she's about to face a very unpleasant um, end to her life. And she wants to spare her husband and her family that experience. So she wants to end the marriage. She doesn't want to tell them, she wants to end it. She wants to put in place all sorts of Um, stuff uh, to to make sure the finances work and then she's going to arrange to go off to Switzerland and and so on and the story plays out and eventually she's convinced that she needs to tell her family what's going on and obviously the situation isn't completely resolved but it, it reminds us of those words in the marriage service the pledges that we make when we get married to be faithful for better or for worse and some of us the lady the consultant doctor in that program but some of us and perhaps it's often a male thing actually we don't like being dependent and actually when we get to a stage in our marriage where one partner is dependent on the other that can be very painful and I I know and I know and I, I look out in our church family and I can see the pain of that and yet that too is what marriage is it is for better for worse It is forever. It's about faithfulness in the most difficult circumstances. It is a covenant, not a contract. And that, therefore, is the second way in which marriage points beyond itself. God gives himself to us utterly in a covenant relationship. This is the new covenant we celebrate when we share bread and wine together every few weeks. The new covenant established in Jesus' blood. It's a covenant relationship that God makes with us, his children, that he will never give up on us. However much we fail him, however unfaithful we are to him, he doesn't give up on us. You see the story in Hosea, the prophetic book in the Old Testament, where Hosea is, is told to marry a prostitute and to be faithful to her, whatever she does, as a picture of God's faithfulness to his people. And God gave his only child that we might become his children, an eternal covenant, not a contract. But this verse, Genesis 2:24, carries on. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh, physically, but also psychologically and emotionally. They are connected. And this verse, these words, are quoted several times in the New Testament. Uh, firstly, by Jesus, uh, Mark 10, also as uh, a parallel in, in Matthew's gospel as well. Jesus said. He's, he's, it's in, this is in the context of a discussion about whether it's okay to divorce. Jesus said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he's quoting those words in yellow are from Genesis. And then Jesus adds this commentary. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 writes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and here he's quoting Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you whom you have received from God you are not your own you were bought at a price therefore honor God with your bodies do you think do you see the very significant things Paul is saying to us about our bodies that we are members of Christ that we are temples of the holy spirit and when we become united with somebody in the act of marriage that is something Extraordinary sacred that is also pointing beyond itself. And then Paul writes again in Ephesians, again quoting Genesis. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband Uh, various things we could say about that verse but you see first of all it's pointing paul's saying marriage is a picture of this eternal relationship between christ and the church interestingly he uses those words love and respect and we might say is he is he suggesting there's some kind of asymmetry in the relationship between the wife and her husband i'm not sure that he he necessarily is although he's writing into a culture where there certainly was an asymmetry and the context that you would respect and love and cherish your wife would have been something quite countercultural to many in his society. But there's there's been some research actually that one of the most important things in a in a successful marriage, in a in an enduring language, in, in an enduring marriage, is respect. Respect for your spouse. Um, the, the passion will, may come and go, but if you respect that person, the relationship is more likely to endure. And interestingly, Paul uses that word. And I would suggest that both those words, love and respect, are two-way. So marriage points itself in this other way too, a picture of what one day is going to happen to us as children of God when we are going to meet, well, the the language the New Testament uses is we, we will come as a bride, we the church, Beautifully prepared for our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And live in a relationship with Christ forever. Secure and with great joy. And then my, my final verse, or this one's actually a collection of verses. The, 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 the verse following the one we've just read says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. interesting isn't it uh we we tend to we tend to the, the the verse is is comparing two concepts which tend not to go together nakedness and shame um why do we cover up our bodies there is a sense in which when we are exposed we feel well we feel very vulnerable If if we're not ashamed, we certainly feel very vulnerable. And the the passage is saying something that I think is not just about the physicality of our bodies. It's it's talking about something wider. You see, um, this is anticipating something that is about to happen in Genesis, where the man and the woman sin, and then they have an instinct that they need to cover up their bodies. And the wonderful thing about the Christian message is that because of the Lord Jesus, because he comes to cleanse us from our sin, to undo the disobedience of Adam and Eve. We can come before God naked, as it were, not trying to cover ourselves up, with with no pretense before God, and yet not feel ashamed. We don't have to... So many of us are so used to putting on a front to wearing a mask, to, to wearing something that covers up who we really are, because we think we need to do that in order to be accepted by other people and certainly by God. And yet one day, one day we will be God with God for Edda, and we will be naked and not ashamed. We will be completely open before God. He, we will know that he can see everything about us, and yet we won't, see that, we won't feel that shame. And that's what a marriage is to be like as well. There is to be an openness. There is to be a vulnerability. There is to be an intimacy. There is to be a respect. There is to be a a knowledge of each other where we know everything and we feel able to share everything without shame. It's a beautiful picture. It's not something that perhaps every marriage manages to encapsulate, but that is the picture that Jesus gives us. And then um, I've put these verses from Genesis chapter 4. And the NI, if you've got the, NI, the New International Version of the Bible open in front of you, it says Adam made love to his wife Eve. Cain made love to his wife. Adam knew, made love to his wife again. But the, the word literally is Adam knew his wife. And again, there's this idea that an intimate relationship is one where we know each other fully, where we are completely vulnerable to each other. There is no imbalance of knowledge. It's not that one partner knows the other better than the other, that one partner is still covered up and the other one isn't, that one partner's therefore able to manipulate or exploit the other. Rather than an end in itself, the sexual act, this knowing in all its fullness, is part of a wider purpose, intimate knowledge. And, and this therefore is a, is a fourth way in which marriage points before beyond itself that great passage that um, people often choose for their weddings 1 corinthians chapter 13 all about love if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love etc and it talks about what love is and then right at the end of 1 corinthians 13 it says or near the end for now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i am fully Known, And I wonder when Paul was writing that, whether he was thinking back to what marriage is, to what uh, a relationship is that encapsulates love, where two people know each other fully. And our ultimate relationship with God is to be one where we know him fully and he knows us fully, and where we are confident in that. One of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. And the psalm goes on to describe all the different ways in which God knows everything about us. And you get the impression at the start of the psalm that that the psalmist feels a bit uncomfortable with this. He finds it a bit threatening that there's somebody out there, this God, who, who just knows everything. And I feel, you know, I'd like to cover myself up somehow. And then you get to the end of the psalm. And the psalmist prays, He invites God. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. I want you to know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Lead me in the way everlasting. There's something about knowing and being known which can seem threatening. But when we expose ourselves to that threat, when we make ourselves vulnerable, we experience the kind of relationship that God has designed us for the kind of relationship we will enjoy when we are with God forever. So um, where, do we, where are we going to go with all this? Well, I, I want, what I want to say this morning is this might all sound quite demanding. This might all sound beyond our reach. This might, all sound, this might make you think, oh, if only, I'd, if only I'd managed to do that. If only that had been what my marriage was like. All sorts of emotions might have come up. And scripture does hold before us an ideal. An ideal of marriage that, remember what I was saying, it points beyond itself. It points to the kind of relationship that God wants with us. And however much we might fail in our earthly marriages, we have a God whose relationship with us need never fail. A God of grace who is always a God of second starts. Um when I'm talking to people who are preparing to get married, I've, I've been known to say, it's not the wedding that matters, but the marriage. Uh, and that's not always what they want to hear, because it's you know, at that stage, obviously, it's all about the wedding. And of course, weddings do matter. But, but of course, the wedding is not really the thing that matters. It's the marriage. It's what's going to come after the wedding that matters. And we live in an age where... You know, you know the hype. You know the, the the way people spend massive amounts of money, and you know themed weddings, and you know you 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 live together for years until you can afford to get married and throw this massive party to impress all your friends. But it's not the wedding that matters; it's the marriage that matters. And yet, even this marriage—so the wedding is pointing forward to something greater than it, to the marriage itself. But the marriage also is pointing forward. And I say this. As I say, I'm exaggerating for effect. It's not this marriage that matters. They do matter. But they, but they matter less than the ultimate marriage to which they point. The marriage of Christ and his church. The marriage that we are one day going to enjoy, whatever our marital status here on earth. However painful our marriage experiences have been or however joyful. They are as nothing compared to the relationship we are going to enjoy with the Lord Jesus when we spend eternity with him heaven is going to be an eternal wedding banquet uh, ignore that if you don't like wedding banquets banquets but you know what i mean it's going whatever whatever the whatever the most pleasurable thing you can think of Whatever the best party or, or sporting event or festival or, or whatever, you can think of, heaven is going to be better than that. And the Bible uses the marriage ima- imagery for that purpose. The marriage is seen as such a positive, joyful, precious, mystery, mysterious thing that the Bible uses it to say, yes, that's what you're made for. That's what you're heading for. That's the kind of relationship with God that he wants with you. So this is good news. It's good news whatever your marriage situation. It's good news if you are a husband or a wife and you have a good marriage. It's also good news if you're a husband and your wife and you're struggling in your marriage. It's good news for children who crave security and consistency. It's good news for society. It's good news for us when we are aware of our own failings and the Bible points to a God who always gives us new beginnings. And if you're, if you're in a situation where you're struggling with the breakdown of a relationship or a relationship that seems to be falling apart, we do offer courses, Restored Lives courses, which a number of folk in the church have been through, um, and, and Talk to Fee would be a great person to talk to about that. Uh, we run those from time to time. It's good news if we can pray for people in their marriages, I mean, look around you and pray for those the marriages in our church. Pray that God will protect and strengthen them. But let's also pray for those who are struggling, whether through bereavement, through singleness, through um, breakdowns in relationships. But also let us look forward to the great marriage, the great feast, the great time when uh, we will be presented to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, together, and we will live with him eternally. And all these early re- earthly relationships, we will see as just the as just the title page to this great marriage which we will enjoy with the Lord forever. I'm gonna be quiet. I'm gonna leave us a chance just to reflect on what I've said, to reach out to God in our hearts pray that he will seal what he wants to tell us, whether or not it's anything I've said on us and help us to do something about that. But I would repeat, if, if you would like to talk to somebody, if you need help, if this is stirring up stuff that you find difficult, do talk to somebody. Talk to me or somebody you know here. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to chat things through with you. But go away remembering that this is about the good news that God has for us. That marriage is a wonderful and beautiful thing, but it's pointing us forward to something immeasurably greater. Let's be quiet for a moment. There is a day that all creation's waiting for, a day of gladness and liberation for the earth. And on that day, the Lord will come to meet His bride. And when we see him, in an instant we'll be changed, and we will meet him in the air, and we will be like him, and we will live for with him forever. Lord, we thank you for the the hope that you hold out for us in the gospel. But we pray too for those of us who are, are struggling in our relationships or who know people who are, who experience sadness or regret when we look at relationships. And we pray that we will know your grace. We will know that you are a God of new beginnings and a God that who above all points us forward to the day when we will be with you forever. But we pray too for those of us who have happy marriages, for those of us who are, who are doing our best each day to love and cherish one another. Lord, we pray for your strength and support and protection on marriages. We pray for those who are about to enter into marriage. We particularly pray for Josie and Jack, thanking you for them. And we pray as we believe their marriage will be one which points to you, which points to something that's even greater than who they are. Bless them, we pray, and all we know who are married and who um, need your help and need your strength for each day. May they know your joy and your blessing. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our final song now a good traditional hymn in which we remind ourselves of the hope to which we look forward.